0: So what you can say by way of conclusion in terms of the 60s and 70s is that there's incredible vitality. There's a really rich intellectual fight uh, and debate about what the country is, where it's going, uh, what it should be. But there's less and less agreement.
1: This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves, available at www gvsu.edu/hc. Welcome to the Hallenstein Center's new online program, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host, Gleaves Whitney, and during the stay-at-home orders, we may not be able to journey much beyond our homes, but that should not stop us from journeying beyond our minds. Today's journey takes us to all kinds of fascinating places, starting with the National Mall in Washington, D.C., because of what that space says about the changing nature of America and about our relationship to a changing Western civilization and the implications for U.S. foreign policy around the globe. Our guide is Professor Michael Kimmich, a history professor since 2005 at the Catholic University of America. He also served in the U.S. Department of State from 2014 to 2016, He recently had a very important, a very provocative book published, a book that I have enjoyed a great deal called The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, which we will explore. My conversation with Professor Kimmich will go about 45 minutes or so, followed by questions from our viewers, so feel free to begin sending your questions to us at any time using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Professor Kimmich, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Well, thank you, Cleve, so much for for having me and 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 for setting this up. It's a uh, it's a pleasure to be at your center as 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 close as one can get at the moment.
1: Well, we're glad to have you. Well, let's start with a definition of one of the key words in your title. What is the West? I think that there are two necessary responses to that question, at least from the author
0: of of, of my book. Uh, and the first is that the West is many many things, uh, often. Uh, Contradictory, and it's a difficult word to define. It's slippery, Uh, and in part, I think it's so present because there are so many meanings, and we could run through all of those meanings uh, at great length from a connection to classical antiquity, a connection to the 18th century Enlightenment, uh, capitalism, uh, socialism, uh, you know, Judeo Christian uh, ethics, or that tradition as well. Uh, And all of those can be uh, the West and much more. But what I've done in my book is to try to narrow it down so that I can tell a story about the West. And so I've used one uh, of many possible definitions, and that is uh, a Euro-American narrative uh, of liberty and self-government. So some sense of a shared heritage or a history is a part of that. Uh, the commitment <clears throat> on the American end uh, and at times on the European is to the idea of liberty or self-government as opposed to authoritarian Uh, forms of government uh, and that's uh, an idea that again is not the only American idea of the West but is pretty much the dominant one uh, in American foreign
1: policy to be sure. You use a very powerful trope to visualize the course of American history in your book. You say that the United States began as a Colombian republic and basically remained that republic for more than 100 years. What does that mean?
0: Yes, this is a a complicated dynamic. Uh, It goes back really quite deeply into American history all the way back to the 17th century before there was uh, an American republic when this idea of uh, the new world as Columbia uh, took root, a sort of mythic land that was connected to Christopher Columbus. And that word, Columbia, uh, has really stuck with us. And that's one of the reasons why the capital of the eventual American republic is Washington, D.C. in the district of Uh, Columbia. That was a 18th, early 19th century uh, decision. And you find the word Columbus and Columbia, you know, everywhere uh, in the late 18th century, and you find it even more uh, across the 19th century. Universities, magazines, rivers, states, cities, uh, etc. But more than just the enthusiasm for Columbus, which is, you know, a a large fact of 19th century American life, what I mean by the Colombian Republic is something a little bit more precise. Uh, So this is really 1880s, 1890s, first decade perhaps of the 20th century, uh, a country that did define itself, you could say in the image of Christopher Columbus. And so you have all of the anniversaries and celebrations in 1892, the 400th anniversary uh, of Columbus's arrival uh, in the Americas. And what Americans at the time, or at least some of them read into this, was that the United States is enterprising, it's an exploring country, Uh, It's casting out for new lands, territories, uh, places to discover. Uh, It's technological. So Columbus was celebrated in America uh, as a navigator. And he was also celebrated in a a mural in the Library of Congress uh, as the progenitor of commerce uh, in America, which is maybe a bit of a reach, but that's how they saw it uh, in the late 19th century. So commerce, enterprise, navigation, movement, exploration, dynamism, these were the virtues that Proponents of the Colombian Republic read into both the legacy of Christopher Columbus uh, and the sort of spirit of the United States uh, at the turn
1: of the century. And then something changed between the, say, Spanish-American War, 1898, and World War I, 1914-1918. How did America's view of itself and its relation to the West and to the world become transformed during those critical two decades?
0: Well, the key change is, is is maybe not so much in the image of the United States, that really is formed at the early stages of the Colombian Republic. So again, uh, early 1890s, uh, and we can speak in a moment, if you will, about the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, which really does so much to, to launch this whole story. That image stays the same, enterprising, uh, dynamic, technological, uh, et cetera. Teddy Roosevelt starts to translate that into naval and military power, other presidents, McKinley, Uh, With the Spanish-American War do so as well? But none of them were actors on the world stage in the way that Woodrow Wilson was. So what you need for the Colombian Republic to matter internationally is for the European state system to collapse as it did in the First World War. So the great empires of Europe go to war with each other in the First World War, many of them, the Ottoman, the German and the Russian don't survive the war. Uh, France and Britain are not quite the powers that they were uh, after the First World War. And then you have in 1919 this American president in Paris who's making some very bold and expansive claims, both about American foreign policy uh, and really how international affairs should be structured and how they should uh, be run. That, uh, I think, is a legacy of the Colombian Republic. Uh, and you could put it this way in 1918, 1919, Woodrow Wilson makes the case for the Colombian Republic as a kind of world leader uh, or as a leader of the West, as, as Wilson would certainly have been comfortable saying. The proposition is first
1: uh, extended, you could say, then, uh, at the end of the First World War. Tell us more about the Chicago World's Fair that you just alluded to.
0: Yes, I, I do see this as the, uh, as the start of my story, uh, and this was 401 years after the arrival of Columbus in the Americas, so they wanted to do it in 1892. They were a little bit late getting it all together, uh, and it was something quite uh, extraordinary. that attracted Global audience. It attracted an audience, an American audience of people uh, in the millions, uh, much beyond the hopes of the organizers uh, of the fair. Uh, And it had uh, many fascinating good and bad sides from our point of view. Uh, In terms of the good sides, there was lots of architectural innovation. There was certainly a celebration of American technology. Columbus was front and center at the World's Columbian Exposition uh, in Chicago. And it was creative, inventive, and it sort of put the U.S. Uh, on the map in a new way for a global audience uh, in the 1890s. There was also uh, a sense of some people belonging to the fair and others not belonging. So it was really a fair for white Americans, you could say, Uh, and there were many groups that were excluded from participation and from representation in the fair, Uh, and there was a sort of patronizing attitude toward um, non-Western peoples at the fair, uh, which uh, was both a feature of the times uh, and a feature uh, of the fair. So it's a complicated event in, in, in American history. It means many things for American culture. What I think is significant, if you take a step back from the fair, it's just the ambition that you see on display. This is a country that matters. This is a country that's going places. We wish to make our mark. That's the message that was uh, sent from the fair. Uh, and if you think 10, 20, 30 years forward, uh,
1: that message was worth listening worth listening to in 1893. So if we go from the midway in Chicago East and go to Washington DC, you also have the Macmillan plan that starts to unfold at this time. What a fascinating study in architecture, landscape architecture, our national symbols. Tell us about the Macmillan plan.
0: Right, well, the Chicago World's Fair, which is this huge event, uh, it was folded up in 1894 uh, or I think actually in the fall of 1893, they, they sort of took it down. And only one building in Chicago remains from the fair. uh, And otherwise, it sort of left us with Cracker Jacks and perhaps the Blue Ribbon Beer uh, and the Ferris Wheel, uh, which are all delightful things and sort of icons of popular American culture. But the fair, uh, you could say, vanished and the city of Chicago moved on. The genuine importance of the Chicago World's Fair for our national life uh, is in the National Mall. So let me back up with, for just a second in terms of the Macmillan plan. So the city of Washington in the 1890s uh, was dirty, it uh, was chaotic, and really did not resemble the city that we know today. Uh, the National Mall was there, sort of in embryo, but was covered with train tracks. Pennsylvania Avenue was, um, you know, sort of an unpleasant, dirty, uh, raucous uh, street. Uh, and remarkably, you have three architects from the Chicago World's Fair, um, Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, Charles McKim, and Daniel Burnham, who suggest a new capital city know, architects might do this sort of thing all the time, but the extraordinary thing is that they were taken up on their ideas, and that was actually a Michigan senator, Macmillan, uh, who uh, spearheaded this this project in Congress, and so it became known as the McMillan Plan. Uh, the McMillan Plan was remarkably ambitious. So one of the things that it did was move the train, uh, sort of the train station of Washington from where it used to be, which is now where the National Gallery of Art is, uh, to where it now is, to Union Station, which was completed uh, in nineteen oh eight, a very spectacular neoclassical structure. The other thing that the McMillan plan did was to extend the National Mall down to the Lincoln Memorial, which was a part of the uh, McMillan plan, and sort of open the National Mall um, in a grand and uh, and dramatic way. And then finally, there were sort of unanticipated uh, additions that came from the McMillan plan. So you have many of the Smithsonian structures. Uh, that uh, defined the city at the present uh, that came because of the Macmillan plan and because of the space that it uh, opened up. So I don't think it would be an understatement to say that the Macmillan plan forever determined the sort of spirit, the image, the structure of Washington, D.C., and through that told a particular story, a kind of narrative about American politics and even, I would say, about American foreign policy.
1: You know, your book, also talks about a, a number of interesting individuals, Michael, and I was wondering if you would like to talk about one or two of the heroes, really, of, of the narrative here. Uh, for example, you and I have spoken of Eisenhower uh, as one of your heroes. Tell us more about that, and anybody else you would like to mention.
0: Sure, um,
1: maybe I can mention uh,
0: three very different kinds of, 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 of heroes that uh, figure in this book. Um, say Eisenhower, W.E.B., Du Bois, and let's go to the easy one, to Truman before Eisenhower. So one Democrat, one Republican, and one critic of American uh, foreign policy, all of whom made uh, very, very important contributions to the way that the West is understood in our culture and the way that it's functioned in American foreign policy. In fact, let me go uh, chronologically with presidents from Truman to Eisenhower, uh, and then I'll back up and speak about W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, So Truman uh, is the president to whom a great deal happened. uh, First of all, becoming president uh, in the spring of 1945 unexpectedly when Franklin Roosevelt uh, died and he was not somebody who was especially versed uh, in high politics, foreign affairs, uh, et cetera. So he had to be a quick study. I think that that story uh, is well known, how he had to deal with the aftermath of the Second World War and the beginning of the Cold War Uh, and he established policies for that and strategies that stayed in place until the end of the Cold War. That, I think, is a familiar story about Truman uh, and one which there's certainly much to admire. What I particularly admire about Truman in the context of this book, uh, the story I'm trying to tell, is that Truman had a, a very pronounced popular touch. So he didn't go to college, Truman. That's one extraordinary detail about him. He had lots of professional failure in his life, uh, especially in his 20s and 30s. And I think that gave him maybe a, a, a particular kind of humility. Uh, he also, uh, I think, was very aware of coming to the White House through local politics and then through the Senate about how foreign policy has to be communicated to the public uh, at large and the public has to be convinced. So when Truman is faced with the task of getting the Marshall Plan passed, this huge transfer of money from the United States to Europe, he was skillful at doing that. So he named it the Marshall Plan for one because he himself was an unpopular president at the time. Uh, And then he expended enormous effort on Capitol Hill uh, to get support for the the plan. I think that that, you know, regardless of what the details of a foreign policy are, that's the method, that's the recipe that any successful president is gonna have to rely on to, to integrate domestic and foreign policy and also to communicate not just to elite audiences, but also to popular audiences, what a foreign policy is about uh, and why it's worth supporting. And I think Truman had a a gift for that. To move on to Eisenhower, I think Eisenhower is a very different kind of figure, of course. He's a celebrity long before he becomes uh, president. In some ways, he didn't want to become president uh, in 1952. And I think that the contribution of Eisenhower, in addition to all of the obvious accolades, D-Day and his leadership during the Second World War and then president of Columbia University and two-term American president, all of that is is clear with Eisenhower. But I think that the genius of the man was in his bipartisanship. So we can speak of another aspect of the successful American foreign policy. It's not just that there's local regional uh, support for it, but Eisenhower was of course a Republican. Uh, He didn't come in and sort of reverse everything that Truman had done. He changed it in some ways uh, but he also built upon it. And I think that that made American foreign policy very strong in those years. You sort of looked at the U.S. from the outside. and you said, well, if it's a Democrat or a Republican, I kind of face the same uh, strategy. And there was coherence to that uh, and continuity. And I think Eisenhower was very good at not putting his own ego front and center. It wasn't the Eisenhower story. Uh, he was able to put a national story uh, at the center of his presidency, and that worked. Now, needless to say, both Truman and Eisenhower were avid defenders of the West, and this goes back to their childhoods uh, in the Midwest, where they acquired classical learning, uh, and they had great respect, both of them, for the history of antiquity, uh, for European history, and felt this very powerful bond between the United States uh, and Europe, which they articulated in a very clear language, both of them, a clear language of Western civilization, of which they felt to be a part, uh, and I cite from what Uh, Winston Churchill in my book, 1952, he rides on the presidential yacht with Truman, and Churchill said, as only Churchill could, you, Harry, more than anybody has saved Western civilization uh, in the last couple of years. So that was, you know, that was the ideal to which they were committed, uh, and that was also something that they held in common. Now, if we look at W.E.B. Du Bois, who's an African-American from Massachusetts who graduates from Harvard uh, in the mid-1890s, he's telling a very different story about the West, uh, and he's doing so with great academic and intellectual brilliance. He made connections between American foreign policy uh, and the age of empire that were very real, starting with the Spanish Civil War uh, and uh, the the realities of the uh, the early 20th century. Uh, He scrutinized the history of slavery to see what it had to say uh, about the evolution uh, and development of the West. And that too uh, is a highly important Story, uh, and he widened the perspective. Uh, He looked uh, deeply into the politics and the history uh, of Africa uh, and was uh, capable, willing, uh, eager to see the depredations of the West uh, in Africa. And he wrote very critically of those things. Uh, And in those critical writings uh, is uh, a series of very, very valuable lessons about how uh, foreign policy can be blinkered, uh, how the danger of white supremacy is sort of ever present. Uh, in in different periods of American history uh, and how uh, you need to have a a view of the world that's larger than just Europe uh, and the United States. So of course he would have been a critic of Truman and Eisenhower, So, these are three very different kinds of heroes, but uh, I think that they're making each of them very significant contributions to this American notion of the West.
1: And then something happens right after these people pass from the scene, whether it's Du Bois or Truman, Eisenhower, at least in their public lives. 1963 is a pivotal year in your book. It's structurally apparent from your book. What happened in 1963?
0: Yes, I do see 1963 as the end of an era. Uh, And let me begin with two data points about things that happened in 1963 and then sketch what I mean about a very profound transition that begins uh, in that uh, dark year in American history, dark because of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But the two data points are um, uh, John F. Kennedy's speech in West Berlin, uh, the Ich bin ein Berliner speech, uh, which he gave in the summer of 1963, which is I think the very high point of this Western narrative, Western affiliation, Western connection to Europe. This is after all an American president speaking to a European audience. The speech went over very well uh, in Berlin at the time and is still looked back on fondly uh, in Germany as a kind of bridge that was built uh, between the two countries. So it did everything that the president would have wanted it to do. Uh, and if you go back and listen or watch the speech, uh, what's extraordinary is how telegraphic it is, how poetic, how vivid, how attuned it is to audience and to place, you know, give it the edge of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and also Kennedy's delivery of it is just uh, masterful, I think. Uh, maybe not in content, one of the greatest presidential speeches, but in style, Delivery in effect uh, certainly up there not quite the Gettysburg address, but uh, almost in that uh, category Likewise, you have publication in 1963 by a University of Chicago professor William McNeil a book titled the rise of the West Which was a densely printed 800 page book that chronicled the history of the West as McNeil saw it from you know the Greeks and the Romans to uh, the world of the 1950s uh, and here you have uh, a sort of academic celebration of the West, and McNeil was critical of some things. And certainly versed in Islamic history and Chinese history, and uh, you know non-Western histories. Uh, but he did want to tell a unique story about the West, and he felt that law, uh, liberty, freedom uh, were vehicles of the West, and that the West was a vehicle of law, liberty, uh, and freedom. Interestingly, it's not a very Cold War book uh, in spirit. He doesn't sort of engage in that fight, but he does certainly celebrate the West as as John F. Kennedy did. Uh, on a different stage uh, in uh, in West Berlin, so those two things happen in nineteen sixty three but then Kennedy is assassinated in November, and that becomes I think truly a psychological break a, a psychological transition uh, in American life there's some there's a before and an after uh, with that event it's symbolism perhaps or perceptions, but I think that that's one thing uh, but of course, the really significant policy change uh, is the escalation in Vietnam, which Kennedy might have Uh, engaged in had he not been assassinated, that's a a hypothetical, but Lyndon Johnson certainly does escalate. That introduces huge internal tensions about American foreign policy. Uh, It becomes a problem with American uh, allies. Uh, Never has American foreign policy been as deeply questioned as it was, let's say from 1965 to 1975 in the major years uh, of the Vietnam War. Uh, And the West just doesn't look the same. Uh, In the midst of Vietnam, and after Vietnam, there's more polarization. There's more difference of opinion. Uh, this idea of the United States as a, a provider of liberty and self-government, sort of beacon of democracy, even to many Americans, that doesn't ring true uh, because of Vietnam. Uh, and the global situation is even more complicated as as Germans and uh, and and Russians and Africans look to the United States uh, as it's fighting this very you know difficult and controversial war. So Vietnam is one thing, and then you have many changes in American culture that are not immediate in 1963, but will play themselves out in 1960s uh, and 70s, where you have really a kind of domestic revolution uh, and the country starts to look at itself differently. And this is the civil rights movement. This is various ethnic pride uh, movements uh, that uh, attempt to change the narrative. There's a, a sort of a new questioning of who the American elite is and who the American elite uh, should be not all of this concerned foreign policy, not all of this was about the West, but the West was very often in the background of these discussions uh, and debates. So what you can say by way of conclusion in terms of the 60s and 70s, is that there's incredible vitality. There's a really rich intellectual fight uh, and debate about what the country is, where it's going, uh, what it should be, but there's less and less agreement. So what I mentioned a moment ago about Truman and Eisenhower What's possible in 1952, a transition from a Democrat to a Republican, maybe a liberal to a conservative, if those are the right words. At any rate, from one president to another, there's so much that's perpetuated. That becomes more difficult. Uh, Circa, let's say, 1975 or 1980, when these changes percolate through the political culture, that sort of agreement uh, is, uh, is, is more difficult to achieve. Now, as a scholar of this subject, I think you can come out you know, in favor of these changes, you can come out against them. There's a lot that you can do in terms of uh, of, of judging them. I'm more interested in just establishing
1: what these changes are uh, and emphasizing their significance. Clearly, you're describing what you call in your book the transition to a post-Columbian America, and it seems to me, as in so much else in the history that you and I study, Michael, is that it's in a it's in a polar tension, a dynamic tension with itself. So you still have elements of a Colombian America in dynamic tension with a post-Columbian America. Sometimes it manifests in a party uh, platform, sometimes in a speech. You'll have a Pat Buchanan come along, for example, in 1992 in Houston uh, at the Republican National Convention and and talk very much in the spirit of a Colombian America. To what extent do you think that that dynamic tension between a post-Columbian America that would clearly have moved into that paradigm, that transition, and the continued existence of a Colombian America in a, say, a remnant of American uh, uh, intelligentsia. To what extent is that dynamic alive, well, and healthy for the republic?
0: Well, let me answer it for your question, if, if, you, if you don't mind, let me answer it for the 80s and 90s. And I think that the discussion to have about the present moment, which does come from this period, I'm quite sure, is maybe a bit of a different one. But uh, let me answer the question for the 80s and 90s. So it's a, it's a bit of a paradox, to be sure, because if you stay at the surface of American foreign policy, what you see, say, from 1975 to 1990 is an unbelievable success story. So all of this gloom and doom about Vietnam, which is pervasive in the early 70s, the energy crisis, Malays, a country that's lost its self-confidence—you know—all of these uh, phrases that we have from the 1970s—they uh, were off the mark because you know the 1980s is going to begin this period of Soviet unraveling. Uh, you know, Reagan doesn't suffer from a lack of self-confidence, uh, and you know I'm very skeptical of triumphalist narratives at the end of the Cold War. I think that they're dangerous for us here at home. And I also think that they're historically false because the Soviet Union falls apart for reasons that often have very little to do with the United States. But be that as it may, the foreign policy success uh, of the US 1989, 1990, 1991 uh, is self-evident, right? The major enemy disappears. You get a unified Germany and NATO. Uh, you get the chance for the US to sort of dictate terms or set terms, inspire terms uh, for the security order Uh, in Europe. And there seems to be, uh, and I think for many years was, a great validation uh, of the American way of doing things uh, in the 1990s, of running an economy, uh, of uh, structuring a government, of establishing certain modern political ideals. All of that is a very, very important story to tell. Maybe it's the biggest story that you can tell uh, about the U.S. uh, in the shadow of the Vietnam War, that it didn't recede from the international stage. In fact, it sort of surged forward and experienced some pretty big victories in the late 80s uh, and early 90s. On the other hand, uh, when you sort of peer beneath the surface, uh, it is at least disconcerting to see how radical the internal disagreements are. Uh, It's almost as if the Cold War sort of kept a lid on it for a while. Uh, Maybe the Cold War was so frightening that it uh, sort of reminded Americans of the existential things that they have in common. Uh, But as that lid was lifted uh, in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you just see an intensification of these internal disagreements. And there are those Americans who feel that Columbus is uh, a villain, uh, that he perpetrated genocide, that he was uh, 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 nothing other than uh, an imperialist who wanted to impose uh, Europe's will uh, on populations that wanted to have nothing to do with him and that a real trauma or tragedy begins in 1492, and we're still living in the midst of that. And you'll see that in lots of academic and scholarly literature, both on Columbus and uh, sort of the overall narrative of Europe's collision with the Americas uh, starting in the uh, in the late 15th century. And on the other hand, you have figures that you mentioned as well, like Pat Buchanan, who were quite strident in their desire to sort of keep on uh, with the old way of doing things. And you're entirely right, for Buchanan, Columbus is a, is a crucial figure, uh, and he's very upset. Uh, that Columbus is not being celebrated uh, at American schools uh, and universities. But Columbus isn't the crux of it, although I think he helps us understand a profound difference between the 1890s and the 1990s. The simple question of why was he a hero for the most part, officially at least, in the 1890s, and why was he so uh, argued about and fought over in the 1990s is is simply an interesting question. But behind that uh, is a... uh, Uh, is, uh, you know, sort of a culture to a degree at odds with itself uh, and unable to agree uh, on who the heroes are, who the heroes should be, uh, sort of what the common ground or what the center point is. And I think that that's there below the surface of these really quite successful 1990s. So it's paradoxical, but uh, I suppose we at the present moment are are the children of that paradox.
1: I think one of the finest parts of your book, Michael, is your conclusion. This peroration talks about architecture and monuments and landscapes and even one lone bust in the State Department. Tell us what you were trying to get across to readers as your book draws to a close.
0: Well, I do think one of the very extraordinary things about Washington D.C. Uh, it's it's typical of national capitals, but uh, you know, this This is our national capital, so it's perhaps especially extraordinary uh, to those of us here, but is it, it it struggles to tell the story, it tells a story, it tells different stories over time, it tells the same story over time, uh, and that in and of itself I find to be a very intriguing aspect. What is this city meant to signify? And, and Washington as an artificial city, which is to say a city that was planned national capital, not a Philadelphia or a Boston or New York, which were Uh, established cities when you uh, see the creation of the American Republic. Washington is not, uh, it's a work in progress. Charles Dickens calls it in 1852 the city of magnificent intentions, uh, which is such a wonderful uh, phrase for Washington. So it's an unbuilt city even uh, in 1852 and then it all gets uh, sort of filled in. So it's maybe even more representative than some other national capitals uh, might be. Uh, You mentioned three sort of points along the way in terms of the book and in terms of the story of uh, 20th century and 21st century Washington, D.C. The first we've already uh, encountered, and that's the National Mall. Uh, And what you really see from the 1890s through, say, the 1950s, which is neoclassical Washington, uh, the city would be unthinkable uh, without that architectural aesthetic. That's the National Archives. It's the Supreme Court building. It's the Capitol building, which is, you know, from the eighteen uh, 50s and earlier, uh, it's the Jefferson Memorial, uh, it's the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, it's really much of what we think of as, as, as important in Washington is this neoclassical city. That in the eyes of the people who created those plans, Macmillan, the architects and others, uh, was meant to tell a story about democracy uh, and meant to tell, us, tell a story about the progress, this is the word they would have used, the progress of liberty. How liberty is progressing and how liberty is a part of progress. What do you need for liberty to progress? What does the National Mall tell us? Some connection to antiquity for sure, probably more Roman than Greek, but uh, uh, you know you have a kind of Roman Capitol building, but then you have a Greek-style pantheon of a Lincoln Memorial, you get both uh, on the National Mall, uh, but also study um, and uh, learning. So the Library of Congress is almost on the National Mall, uh, and certainly the great museums, art collections, and others are there as well. So if you're going to have liberty, if liberty is to progress, it has to be connected to the study, intellectual development, uh, the life of the mind, uh, and thus does, you know, sort of democracy and self-government move forward. That's a very powerful narrative that's really embedded in the heart of the city. (laughs) Another narrative that I'm less fond of, I can say directly now in this format, is the technocratic city of Washington, which is also quite uh, powerful. I don't write about this in the book, but the Pentagon would be a great, a great example of this. I mean, it really is uh, you know, sort of most impressive from the air, the Pentagon, uh, but it's a remarkably office-like uh, office building in most respects, and it and, and doesn't seem to tell as far as I can uh, intuit any real story about the country or uh, about the country's politics. But I do write in the book, uh, quite critically, about the 1960 State Department building, Uh, which is such a chance to say something about American foreign policy and uh, America's place in the world. Uh, And it's such a bland uh, and uninteresting building. Uh, And it's just remarkable also, given how much text and statuary a lot of these earlier Washington buildings have, it's just remarkable how little it invests in any of that, with one exception, which you mentioned, which is the bust, the solitary lonely bust of of, of Montesquieu, uh, author of The Spirit of Laws, a wonderful (laughs) presence to have in the state department but he's there sort of next to a you know, room that they have for parties for people's promotions you know sort of forlorn uh and you wouldn't even know it's montesquieu unless you would go up and look and look at it closely so it's it's a building that doesn't want to tell a story uh and that just seems like a a shame to me and you can get that feeling in a lot of different uh washington buildings the building that i address at the end of the book uh is Uh, The most recent addition to the National Mall is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, And just by the standards of civic life, when you walk by the building as a Washingtonian, the lines are out the door. Uh, There's an excitement and enthusiasm there that's present in no other Washington Museum at the present. Uh, And there has been since the building was uh, dedicated uh, in September 2016, just a great affection for the structure. Uh, And I think what's remarkable about that, that building is that it's new. It's not white for, I think, more than one reason. Uh, It's a distinctive architecture. It makes reference to uh, African architectural patterns, which as far as I know, no other building on the National Mall does. So it says all of those things. Uh, It underscores the African element in a museum of African-American history. And at the same time, it's very much in dialogue with the National Mall. So the angles of its stories are at 17 degrees, which is the exact same angle uh, of the triangles on the top of the Washington Monument. So it's meant to evoke that. Your sight lines when you go by it, uh, sort of shape, depending on which way you're looking, your view of the Capitol or your view of the Washington Monument. Uh, And the content of the museum is about the achievement of self-government. So it is the same story. It is, in a sense, the old story, uh, but it's told in a very new way. And that seems to me exactly the right way to do it. Uh, You don't just keep on building the Jefferson Memorial that's too Dull and boring. You build new memorials new buildings, but as long as they stay in dialogue with the older ones, you're still telling something of the same story. And that to me seems uh, necessary and, and desirable.
1: Well put. And I so highly recommend when people pick up your book that they read it carefully and, and do not neglect that conclusion. Let me ask you a couple of meta historical questions. You and I are historians. We like to think about this kind of thing. And I, I think a number of our audience would too. Uh, so, you know, we got uh, this idea of historic change and continuity. As we think about that, do we need civilizational units called civilizations and the narratives they provide? Do we need something as historians between nation states and entire glo- you know, the entire globe with its world histories?
0: I think so. I mean, they make a lot of our fellow academics... Uncomfortable, this sort of discourse and conversation, and could go back to a book that I mentioned in my own book, Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, which made a big stir in foreign policy circles, but was pretty roundly condemned in academia as drawing borders and uh, and separating off people from each other and and, and limiting. Uh, and up to a point, I'm sympathetic to the academic critique of civilization. Certainly, it can promote chauvinism. Uh, you can create unnecessary. Uh, boundaries, the boundary between the Muslim and the Christian world, is a very permeable boundary historically. Uh, lots of transfer of ideas and, uh, and, uh, and books and texts. Uh, in part, the history of classical antiquity comes to us through Arab translations uh, of Plato and Aristotle uh, in books that we think of as, as, as indigenously Western, and that's, you know, sort of crucial for any understanding uh, of civilization, but I, I think it can't be dispensed with. I think it's, there's this zone uh, of, of both history and politics that's nebulous. It's sort of in between religion and language, uh, maybe sensibility, uh, but it's clearly there. Uh, and whether Huntington is exactly right about this zone being the conflict zone of the present, I mean, I think after September 11th, there was a you know, sort of sense that maybe Huntington was onto something. Uh, but if you read his book, it often is a bit uh, sort of schematic. And so obviously there are other zones uh, that matter as well. The nation state issues that are of of, of sort of global scope. Uh, Coronavirus, I don't think is profitably understood in civilizational terms. Uh, That's not the crisis that will bring out civilization, but the Ukraine crisis that began in 2014 has lots of civilizational overtones, lots of religious overtones. Uh, There's an east and a west there. Uh, the different actors tend to interpret things uh, in civilizational terms. So I don't think that you can understand the Ukraine crisis unless you look into the history of civilization and see why it matters uh, matters to people. So I think it has to be there even if it brings forward certain uncomfortable truths, or maybe especially if it brings forward certain uncomfortable truths.
1: Uh, and the historians are just the poorer for not uh, for not taking it into account. So how should we think about the West moving forward? How should we teach it? Right, Uh, well this, uh, yes,
0: it is is a big question. Uh, I'm simply happy at this stage uh, when people care about that question and care about that uh, debate. One thing that I noticed from the culture wars of the 1980s, which were sort of a big story, uh, and academics were involved, and you had Bill Bennett, the Secretary of Education, who was in the mix and and, and sort of fighting out the culture wars, uh, and they were about curricula and what to teach and what to celebrate, who to have as a role model, Uh, all of that. When I look back with that, I have a certain nostalgia just because of the intensity, uh, the vitality of that debate and discussion. Now I have a kind of concern that it's all sort of fading uh, into an internet driven uh, culture uh, in which books are not that important to begin with uh, and people sort of talk past each other uh, and don't really uh, engage. So I think controversy is certainly to the good. um, And in a sense, if it brings more attention to these issues and these questions, Uh, uh, that's valuable. What I would suggest for American foreign policy and for universities, these are two different areas not to be uh, conjoined as they often were uh, in the early Cold War. For American foreign policy, I think the language of the West is valuable. Uh, I think it can be done uh, in a tolerant way uh, uh, without... Uh, sort of undue chest-thumping, but of course, the U.S. has to have a global foreign policy. So the West is the kind of thing that an American president or secretary of state should emphasize in Europe, uh, and you might go to the Middle East and, and Asia and speak about similar principles, liberty, self-government, human rights, et cetera, but you, you know, be aware of your audience, and there, I think, a sort of uh, robust language of the West could be off-putting. So with certain allowances for audience uh, and messaging, I think there's still very much a place for the West uh, in American foreign policy. Uh, For universities, um, you know, I I feel myself to be sort of a great outlier uh, in this respect from what I can gather. Uh, I think that there is a place for the West uh, as well. There's a place for many other things. It's not, I think, the exclusive frame that it sort of was in the 1950s uh, and before. It has to share the limelight with other civilizations and other uh, categories of experience and categories of sort of organizing thoughts. Uh, and people, but I don't see how you can understand the founding of the American Republic without some grasp of political thought and experience in antiquity. I don't see how you can do that without some grasp of thought and experience in the 18th century uh, enlightenment. At the very least, even if you're a critic of the West, you wanna know what all these presidents and secretaries of state and others were talking about. So if we get too far away from the West, I fear that our own sort of tradition, country, politics could become sort of illegible. Uh, to us. And so to that extent, um, I think universities have a responsibility uh, to continue teaching this material.
1: You know, you let this idea for this book incubate for, I think, for more than a decade, as you described, you know, how it came to to be. And uh, I'm fascinated by, you know, you finally decide you're going to write this book. And I'm curious, what how did your ideas about the West change in the course of all the conversations and colloquia, uh, you know, in Europe and in the United States that you were a part of over the better part of a decade?
0: Well, the book began as, 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 as you know, sort of graduate students' projects often do something. So I was writing a dissertation on Whitaker Chambers and Lionel Trilling, who spoke constantly about the West, the Western geopolitics, the Western culture. Uh, the Western art, uh, literature, philosophy. So it's everywhere. And I wanted to get a book on the topic to understand what they meant when they talked about the West. And I realized that there wasn't any such book, not in US history. There are lots of histories of the West in German history, in Italian history, French history, British history, Russian history, Turkish history, Japanese, et cetera, but not in American history. And so I made a note of that as a graduate student and uh, wanted to follow up at some point. that was the genesis of the project. And it's simplest sense, uh, but I've always enjoyed the controversy around the West. So if it's Alan Bloom, if it's Francis Fukuyama, if it's Edward Said, if it's Huntington, uh, these are these huge books that they wrote in the last 30, 40 years, and they tend to be books about the West. Uh, And that just intrigues me why it provokes attention, why uh, it provokes disagreement, uh, why it provokes interest. You could just say what matters in American politics and American foreign policy is American material, American ideas, American thoughts. Isn't Thomas Jefferson enough? And, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the rest of the American tradition, why do you have to deal with the, uh, with the West and bring this in? Uh, and yet it's always, uh, or very often, there. So I wanted to trace that L all, well, uh, and very much enjoy tracing that uh, in the research. What I came to feel uh, in 2016, uh, when Trump was elected, there's a new framework for understanding this issue that there's more up for grabs uh, in American politics and American foreign policy than I believe to be the case in 2015. There's more that's contested. There's more uh, that's you know, sort of more scenarios that you can imagine in the future that could be very, very different from how things are uh, in the present. And all that made me want to do uh, is finish the book more quickly uh, and sort of get it out there because uh, if things are up for grabs, uh, you know, perhaps it's helpful to have uh, some definitions and some storytelling about what the West was uh, in the past. But I do think um, you know the transition from George W. Bush to Obama is, in some respects, superficial compared to the transition between uh, Obama and Trump. And that means that there's really something afoot uh, in American politics, uh, and a lot of this is about American foreign policy. So from my point of view, what better time to be
1: <laughs> commenting on and trying to figure out this uh, story of the West? I hear you. And you know, I do want to get into another whole part of your life. I mean, you've worked not only as an historian at a university for some 15 years, you've also served in the U.S. State Department in the Office of Policy Planning from 2014 to 2016. What does the Office of Policy Planning do, Michael?
0: Well, it was founded in 1947 by George Cannon, um, probably the greatest uh, American diplomat uh, in uh, in U.S. history, and he founded it uh, at the command of George Marshall who would come to the State Department uh, from the military of course uh, and he asked at the State Department when he got there who does planning around here uh, and the answer was nobody so he created an <laughs> Office of Policy Planning to, to get the job done and one of the very first proposals from the Office of Policy Planning was in fact the Marshall Plan so they've had an, an illustrious history from the beginning that's pretty difficult to uh, to live up to but in it's more modern forms the Office of Policy Planning is there uh, to engage the world of ideas. So the world of academia and think tanks uh, in journalism uh, is there to provide longer range thinking for the secretary. That might mean three months ahead or six months ahead or at the very most a a year ahead. And it's also supposed to channel unconventional, critical uh, thinking dissents uh, from how the rest of the building, the State Department is formulating uh, foreign policy. So it's probably the closest to academia of any office in the whole of the, Uh, of the US government. So it's uh, it's a very, very nice place for uh, for an academic to be. Uh, If I could distill uh, a lesson from my time at policy planning, what what had happened in the last couple of years is that the speechwriters for the secretary were brought into the Office of Policy Planning. uh, And so that gave me insight into how you articulate uh, a foreign policy. uh, And one of the things I distilled is just how important that is. uh, you can have a perfect policy you can kind of come up with the best memos and the best analysis and have the best uh, intelligence and all of that. But if you can't communicate it, uh, it's not going to go very far. And so that's in part why I'm so admiring of the 1963 speech by John F. Kennedy. Kennedy didn't innovate when it comes to American foreign policy. It was all set by 1961. He doesn't really change the strategy. He doesn't change the direction of the U.S., but he was very, very good at articulating what it meant and what it signified. Uh, And sort of how it looked in its ideal uh, form. There's a great, great, there's a great deal to learn from that. Uh, That's uh, uh, amazingly significant. What I would add to that, uh, and that's what I was trying to get across with the points about Truman, uh, is also how important it is to articulate foreign policy to our population here at home. Uh, I'm not quite sure we did enough of that uh, in our office. That's probably one area where I would be uh, self critical, but I think you need to have the secretary going out. Uh, not just to New York and and, and D.C., but to other places and engaging audiences. This is why we're doing things. This is why um, we believe a certain issue to be a crisis or an opportunity. Uh, These are what our ideals are when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, And again, that's a matter of clear, elegant, uh, uh, you know, sort of vivid uh, description uh, and communication and, you know, a really good Office of Policy Planning will give you both, it will, you know, Uh, help to coalesce the strategy that the President and the Secretary of State has, and it will also give you options for clearly articulating that, uh, and hopefully to the right audiences as
1: well. We mentioned speech writing, and you probably know, in an earlier iteration of my career, I was a speechwriter for Michigan Governor John Engler for a number of years. And as I wholeheartedly agree, you've got to translate that policy. We used to kid the governor, we'd say, look, you want to sell the TV from all the circuitry in the back. You got to turn it around so that people can see the TV from the front, the picture. You got to sell the TV from the picture tube point of view, not the circuitry. And so, I, you know, in the State Department, I think sometimes we encounter the same uh, mindset. I mean, sometimes people want to get into the weeds of the circuitry, and they, they forget what's this going to look like in the, the picture tube. You know, and going back to uh, Kennedy's speech as inaugural, ninety percent of his inaugural address in '61 was, of course, foreign policy. It it, it seems to embody yes. so much of what you're talking about, the foreign policy vision of the United States, but very grounded in a Western perspective, very much with the words that you've described, self-government, liberty, freedom, uh, all of those sentiments are embedded, instantiated in Kennedy's rhetoric. And so what you're talking about later is really a variation on that theme. So, I, you know, I, I, I think there there's a lot to say about what, what you're what you're broaching here. Let me just ask you this, um, did did your work at State change your academic understanding of transatlantic relations in the West, substantially? Yes, I think it made me,
0: um, and maybe this sounds odd given the discussion we've been having and, and, and much of the book, but uh, it's simply the case, it made me a little bit more, uh, a bit chastened at times, um, how difficult it is to accomplish things. Um, how you sort of have to stick at times to your closest allies uh, and uh, how sort of pivotal and crucial those relations are uh, and how you can't adopt a one-size-fits-all recipe for foreign policy. So that's the intricacy and the complexity of something like the West. It will work with certain audiences, certain moments, uh, but it's not something that you can just plug in at any point. To go back to Kennedy for a moment, what I admire from, in Kennedy, I don't think I would have been able to see this before uh, working at the State Department myself, is that he's actually doing two things in the inaugural address. He's affirming Western values, doing so unapologetically, sound the bugle, uh, all of that. Uh, we will defend liberty uh, everywhere where it's in perils. He's doing that uh, job. It's maybe a bit more messianic than I would like in a way, but uh, uh, he does it very well. But he also is speaking to decolonization in that inaugural address. You know, there are these nations that are emerging from uh, imperialism from colonialism we the United States are at your side uh, and in a sense he's sort of pursuing these two tracks uh, simultaneously he's affirming Western values affirming the transatlantic relationship to be sure but he's also opening himself opening his presidency uh, to other constituencies building bridges uh, building bridges there as well so he's very very attuned uh, to situation uh, and audience and I felt like when we lost that collectively at the State Department We were punished for it when we were able to retain that feeling of being very attuned uh, to situation and audience. We were sort of rewarded for it uh, policy-wise, but now there's nothing more interesting to me than to go back to history and just look about how things were uh, in the past and to sort of tally up successes and failures then uh, and to see if we can uh, learn from them and apply them to, to sort of crises down the road.
1: Well Cicero said that we should give seven years to the republic and I think after your service there, you probably recommend that historians do a stint of public service at some point in their public Absolutely. service, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel very strongly yes. about that too. Yeah. No. That, no. Too. It's,
0: it's, a, it's a gift to us. I, I hope that we give as much to the to the government as as, as it gives to us, but certainly in terms of understanding and teaching, uh, it, it's 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 a wonderful thing to have uh, uh, in your background.
1: We have some people are queued up now to ask questions, but I can't let this question escape before we go to our queue. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the various ways of responding to it, you've seen both in our 50 laboratories of democracy and in Washington, DC and abroad, how has that in any way changed your thinking about the West, uh, You know, shaped how we should go forward in your view? Would you address that please? So, sure. Uh, Let me make
0: three points and respond. Um, The first is about uh, the transatlantic relationship, and I don't think it's in great shape before the coronavirus, like it's in worse shape uh, during the coronavirus, Uh, and we should make efforts on both sides of the Atlantic to to correct that. There should be more uh, cooperation, there should be more, um, put it on the sort of people, to people level, more sympathy that we show, uh, for one another, and that's, uh, I think, simply an investment uh, in, uh, in the future. If you put the resources of Europe and the United States together, of course, there are many other countries you could work with on the coronavirus, but thinking through the lens of the transatlantic relationship, an enormous amount can be uh, accomplished. If it becomes a kind of zero-sum race to see who's first to get the vaccines and as many face masks as possible, uh, you know, I think it will be slower. Uh, the recovery from uh, from this crisis. So I think more transatlantic cooperation is an easy thing uh, to recommend uh, in the midst of this crisis, and I would love to see it happen. I think that this is early in the crisis to say, but I think that the crisis has rewarded governments that have been direct and transparent in communication uh, about the crisis. And here I would sort of hold up Germany uh, as, uh, as a good example. Angela Merkel came before the German public second week of March and and really, you know, sort of laid out a very gloomy uh, scenario. Uh, I'm sure it was very unpleasant to hear uh, as a German, but I think it also helped people to adjust uh, to the new reality that they were uh, living in. That to me connects to the major arguments uh, of my book, uh, transparency, <laughs> the, the virtues that we associate with the Bill of Rights, free media, uh, you know, sort of investigation into where governments are gonna screw up and it's an enormously difficult crisis and governments, all of them will screw up a lot in the midst of it, but we need to have public scrutiny of that. Uh, And that's something that we collectively, the US, Europe and sympathetic countries, should be building into a narrative uh, that self-government is, uh, you know, not just a good unto itself, but it's going to help in dilemmas and crises uh, of the kind that we're facing. It's clearly not the first or the last uh, crisis of this kind that we're going to uh, that we're going to face. And I think we haven't done that at all. I don't think Merkel has done that. Uh, I don't think our president has done that. I don't see any Western politician who's really built that into a narrative so far. And that's the third brings me to the third point, which is worrisome, which is that China has been pretty good at building the counter-narrative to that, which is that authoritarian governments are more efficient. They can control their populations. They can get them to sort of obey. Um, and so China is really the sort of exemplary... Uh, country in this case. I think if we had access to full information about China, we would see a very different reality, but that's the message that the government uh, is making, uh, you know, not so ineffectively at the moment, and I would love to see that countered by uh, what you could describe as a kind of Western message that would emphasize, um, you know, not just uh, solidarity and uh, shared scientific cooperation, uh, but also this narrative or story of, of, of liberty and self-government, uh, you know, being uh very valuable politically in the scheme of things.
1: Yes. Well, looking at our queue, we have Winston Elliott asking a couple of questions. He's writing to us from Houston, and he was a, our, my first guest in the Lunch and Learn series. So uh, Winston has an honored place, and he would like a, your definition of the difference between an isolationist and a nationalist mm-hmm. America first foreign policy. And then there's a follow-up question.
0: Sure. I think that there is clearly a, uh, a distinction. And I think if we would look at the current administration, my guess is that they would be quite comfortable with the description of their foreign policy as nationalist. I think that Trump has used the word a few times, and certainly, you know, close advisors, Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, when he was in government, uh, Mike Pompeo, and others, I don't think that they would be at all uncomfortable with a nationalist America first frame. Obviously, America first was a campaign phrase and has been repeated extensively throughout the first term uh, of Trump. And I think what's meant by that is uh, that vigorous national action on the international stage uh, is good. Uh, That might mean avoiding certain conflicts that don't involve the national interests. So it takes us perhaps to Trump's Syria policy uh, and a few other, their issues, but on economic affairs, you can act very boldly on the international stage. You can be, in a sense, internationalist, uh, but you're doing so in the name of uh, of national interest. You're protecting American manufacturing or industry by um, through tariffs and through uh, other kinds of actions that stigmatize China and perhaps other culture, uh, other countries uh, in the name of the national uh, of the national interest. I think the point being that uh, you know. Nationalist foreign policies can be activist; they can be very wide in scope, Uh, and uh, you know I think the Trump administration would see themselves uh, in those terms. Whereas I think an isolationist foreign policy really does try to build what had previously been called Fortress America, and to make the argument that we have these oceans around us, we have a very strong military, we're sort of sufficient to ourselves, uh, and we don't need um, excessive involvement. Uh, in the outside world. So the national interest is really, in that sense understood as sort of protective. You have to, uh, you have to guard yourself from those terrible things that can come from the outside uh, or guard yourself from overreaction. Uh, but the business of America is business or internal affairs uh, are really primary. So I don't think we've ever had an isolationist president to be honest. We have had nationalist presidents more than just uh, one, but it's an important part uh, of the political sensibility of the country. There's long been a kind of longing for an
1: isolationist foreign policy. And Winston's follow-up question, I think, is is a good uh, segue for the next question. He says, in such difficult times as these, should Americans continue to support a pretty expansive activist foreign policy? I think that
0: um, we've been overcommitted in our foreign policy for a long time. Uh, and I think that this comes from certain misinterpretations at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and in addition to that, you know, sort of an exaggerated sense of what we can accomplish in the world. But in addition to that, uh, a tendency to militarize foreign policy uh, problems, in part because the U.S. does have this extraordinary military superiority. So there's a temptation to use military power uh, in response to problems that are not military in nature it's a very complicated point but i would 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 make this argument in relation to september 11th that in the end it was not a military threat as such that we faced after september 11th it was more something that could have been dealt with with sort of policing and uh, you know sort of intelligence services uh, maybe covert action but uh, both the afghanistan and the iraq war uh, have proven to be fairly unsuccessful in terms of their stated uh, aims and do constitute the biggest part of american uh, overreach um, I think in that sense, um, two thousand and eight was certainly a wake up call, the financial crisis of two thousand and eight uh, and a lot of the Obama administration decisions, not all of them, but a lot of them are to be understood in the context his understanding of restraint. So one of the reasons the u s doesn't go to war with Russia over Ukraine uh, has to do with the American economy and a, and a desire on the part of the Obama administration not to increase the military expenditures. Uh, and in a sense, to sort of rein in um, confrontations that could have uh, that could have led in that direction. but I think from the vantage point of a president trump, even that was 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 too little, so there was a effort to sort of move back. but then, if you look at the record of the Trump administration, actually military spending has gone up, uh, and American military and other involvements in the world are not substantially less now uh, than they were. Four years ago, I think that that's proof. If you look at the last two presidents, Obama and Trump, both of them wanted to minimize the American footprint to save money, uh, to engage in nation building at home. That's Barack Obama's phrase, not Donald Trump's, but I'm sure Trump would agree with it. Both of them wanted to do that, and it proved to be uh, very difficult. So, either in a second Trump term or if a new president comes uh, to the White House in January, the one thing to learn from the corona crisis is sort of better now than later in terms of. cost-saving mechanisms, uh, ways to very intelligently deploy American military power, but not to uh, engage in overreach. It does seem to me among the most urgent foreign policy uh, questions at the moment, how to keep relations with Russia and China from not going off the rails and getting us into uh, very, very expensive uh, and probably unnecessary confrontations. That's going to be a great and and, and very, very important challenge uh, in, in the months and years to come.
1: Changing registers a bit. We have a question now, it's more of a historical nature. Are there any differences in the way the U.S. fought wars against other Western nations compared to non-Western nations? And the writer asks, say, the difference between Germany and Japan in World War II as an example.
0: I think there is a difference. I'm not an expert on the topic, and so um, I really learned what I know about this topic from a historian by the name of John Dower, who wrote a book about the U.S. Uh, war in the Pacific called War without Mercy, and so I borrow from him, but i you know I've not really researched the subject and uh, <laughs> would almost defer to to people who know uh more substantively uh, the issues than I do but uh, from what I can observe uh, there's a twofold difference so one of the things that the war became between the u s and japan uh was was a race war, and so there was a stigmatization of the Japs, obviously internment of the Japanese. Uh, within the u s um, and a sort of racializing you see this in cartoons and images from the second world war a racializing image of 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 Japanese that's not uh, to be found i think either to the same degree or to really any degree uh, with german Americans or with uh, with Germans. Uh, obviously, Hitler was stigmatized and Germans were hated during the second world war uh, but there wasn't that sort of racializing element, so that's one difference, and the other is that it goes back to Eisenhower there's an extraordinary order that Eisenhower gives his soldiers on that morning of D-Day, and he made it several times after that, which is that this is a war, in a sense, in the name of the West, in the name of civilization, and so if there's a church or some important building, you've got to preserve it, even if there's a military cost uh, to doing so, because this is what the war is about. Um, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to guess that, that just wasn't the attitude when it came to Japan, And so the firebombing of Tokyo and you know the sort of bombing campaigns. Of course, the U.S. bombed Hamburg and Dresden and other German cities. So, go both ways on this. But I think that Japan was was bombed without an eye to you know sort of its civilizational uh, treasures. So there is, I think, uh, uh, that distinction. If we would go back to the Spanish-American War, I think there's much more evidence at that time uh, of um, the dangers that can reside uh, in fighting wars in the name of uh, in the name of civilization. And, and I think some would make that argument about uh, about Vietnam, but there too, I feel like I'm at the edge of my uh, of my expertise. But I think it is a factor, uh, and it, it can be very risky to put yourself on the side of the civilized and put your enemy on the side of the uncivilized, and that uh, uh, you know can have uh, negative consequences on the battlefield. So it's, it's it's a language that military commanders and politicians should be should be careful with.
1: Goes all the way back to the beginnings, to Greeks and barbarians, doesn't it? Indeed. Could you speak more? This re- viewer asks to the perspective shared by W.B. Du Bois and James Baldwin regarding being in the West, but not entirely of the West. Okay. So I've mentioned Du Bois uh,
0: already, and Du Bois had a very long career. So he graduates from college in the 1890s, and then he dies, I, I think it's around 1960, um, maybe even a little later. Uh, but he dies, I think, at the age of 90 or so, and there are multiple chapters and phases. In his career, so his own thinking evolves quite a bit on this on this point. What you see from his great, I think it's 1902, 1902, 1903 book, uh, Souls of Black Folk, uh, is the early Du Bois. And here you have somebody who had studied in Berlin at the Kaiser Wilhelm University, somebody who had done a PhD uh, at Harvard, somebody who knew Greek and Latin, uh, who writes in that book about sitting down with Aristotle. Uh, and other great figures from Western civilization, the phrase he uses, and they wince not, they didn't wince. I mean, I'm part of their company, they're part of my company. This is a, this is a, a tradition that he was very happy in a way proud uh, to claim. And so for him to fight racism was to say that there should be no barrier to the study of the, uh, these ideas and to access to this education it should be available to all uh, and is good for all, for the white American and for the African uh, American. I don't know if he ever discarded that idea about education uh, and books, uh, but he does become progressively more despondent, I would say, about American foreign policy. He petitions the UN in 1947 uh, on behalf of the African-American population uh, protesting segregation. Eventually he uh, you know, becomes very close to the Communist Party, becomes a Communist Party member, and then he dies in Ghana in exile, really uh, you know, sort of thoroughly disgusted with what the United States is uh, during the Cold War. So there was a feeling of participation on one level, it was a, certainly a very critical side uh, to Du Bois, and it seems like the critical side came to the fore uh, in the later decades of his, uh, of his life. Baldwin is, is a different thinker. Baldwin is less political. The essay that I look at in The Amendment of the West, which is, I think, as great an essay as anybody has ever written on the topic, is called Stranger in the Village, which he published in the 1950s, about a winter he spent in a village in Switzerland. Uh, and he looks at the church there, he comes from Paris, He was living in Paris at the time, an intellectual published author. And he looks at the church and he says, the villagers in this church are connected to this church in a way that I am not. And they're connected to Beethoven and to Aristotle and to all of these Western uh, ornaments in a way that I'm not. I trace my heritage back to Africa, where I'm perpetually watching the European you know, sort of slave traders or colonizers uh, arrive. Uh, so that's one part of the Baldwin essay. And then at the very end of the essay, he sort of looks at the United States as to a degree unique. Uh, and says that white Americans are in fact, whether they like it or not, they're sort of the least white of uh, of white people. Uh, they're the most influenced by African American culture. And there is this sort of possibility that Baldwin alludes to at the end of the essay uh, that maybe a new kind of democracy can be formed uh, by transcending some of these barriers uh, and uh, distinctions. And I think Baldwin was also pretty despondent about that project at the end of his uh, life in the 1970s. But, uh, uh, He's, I think, a little bit less willing to claim uh, the great intellectual tradition of the West uh, compared to Du Bois, but I think he's making certain claims about the opportunities of American culture that Du Bois might not have have agreed to and sort of look to America as a possible synthesis. Perhaps in all of these terrible conflicts, sort of West, non-West, the U.S. can be something of an honest broker. That, That at least would be the ideal scenario for Baldwin.
1: This is the last question from a viewer who writes, what role have schools and universities played in both the expansion and the abandonment of the West?
0: Well, schools and universities are the lifeblood of this story. Uh, the West uh, is, is, is uh, for the most part, not a burning concern uh, for Americans. You know, the United States is not a country like Turkey and Russia where you have a brooding debate about whether, whether a part of the West or not a part of the West, this is just not something that moves the majority of Americans. It tends to be the concern in the West uh, of educated Americans, there's, there's sort of a reason for that. Uh, uh, and it has been either the gift or the curse of American universities. This is what American universities wanted to instill uh, for a very long time. Uh, I'll review just a little bit of that history and then conclude about uh, why it is that universities moved away from this uh, from this commitment? So, it was difficult to study American history and American literature in American universities until the late 19th century, early 20th century. The first PhD program in U.S. You know, sort of history American studies is 1937, which is uh, U.S. history you could do earlier, but the first PhD program in American studies is 1937, which is astonishing. What is that? 150 years after the republic uh, is founded. So, education up until that point was really European as such. It was Greek and Latin. Uh, It was classical education, uh, renaissance, maybe early modern, uh, and then, uh, you know, sort of things uh, fell away. Uh, In the 1890s, Harvard got rid of the Greek and Latin requirement. uh, That was considered to be a huge step uh, in a new direction in American higher education. And then when Columbia did the same about a decade later, decade and a half later, their alumni were very angry. How can you educate people if they're not fluent in Greek and Latin, able to read these languages at least. Uh, And so the answer that Columbia came up with was the Western Civ program. Uh, This is what would give students what they needed, but not force them to spend many of their teenage years studying Greek and Latin. Uh, And so the Western Civ curriculum was born, uh, something that people studied in English without too much scholarship, the sort of great book to the West. This was the curriculum that William McNeil studied as a student and sort of set him off on his uh, career as a historian. It spread from Columbia to U Chicago to Stanford, you know, sort of across American academia, St. John's College uh, in Annapolis and elsewhere. Uh, and that was the vogue really until the 1960s uh, and 70s. Uh, the reason it was felt to be inadequate uh, has a lot to do with the multiculturalism uh, of internal American life. So the sense that a West curriculum is just inadequate to a culture that is composed of many groups that don't have origins in Europe and the United States. And so you need to adequately understand these groups. You need to alter uh, the the curricula, the educational framework for uh, studying their literature, their history, philosophy, religion, uh, et cetera. But then there's also the politics of academia. So after Vietnam, the West just looks conservative. Uh, And of course the culture wars are fought out in the universities in the 1980s while Ronald Reagan is president. And so there's a sort of anti-conservative agenda that's not universal in academia. Uh, but it is pretty strong. So uh, now if you would, I think, ask most American undergraduate students, graduate students, (laughs) do you want to do something about the West? Do you want to study the West? It would just seem archaic to them. Uh, And if it wouldn't seem archaic to many students, depending on their politics, it would look uh, politically uh, suspicious. So that transition, it sounds maybe almost bland when I describe it in those terms, is probably one of the most consequential changes. Uh, in American culture because it determines so much Uh, and to make the point to sort of end where I began. If you don't have universities teaching the West in the United States, it's not going to happen. You know, American culture is thriving, it's it's vibrant, it's, it's, you know, popular culture alone is endless in this country. You can live on all of that and be perfectly happy. You don't need uh, the West necessarily. So if universities are not going to do it, uh, it will sort of fade away. Uh, and get lost and that's I think simply why it's high stakes in terms of how universities approach these issues and the decisions uh, they make and that too is one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book.
1: Very well said. Thank you Professor Michael Kimmich for sharing your passion for history and talking us through this fascinating new book, The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy published by Basic Books. Uh, We're eager to have you back to speak to our audience I wanna also thank our viewers whom I invite to Zoom. Zoom in or join us on Facebook at the same time on Thursday, May 14th, when my guest will be a recent graduate of our Cook Leadership Academy, Brent Reed. Brent, who recently earned his Master of Public Health Administration at GVSU, is deeply passionate about leading positive change within the American healthcare system. And he'll discuss his experience of leading in a crisis and helping providers transition to virtual care during the pandemic. Till Thursday at 1 p.m., stay tuned and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Hallenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Howenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.